This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. I'm Polly Dineclaw. Tonight, we have a special edition of Generation Justice, providing you with a presentation on the Constitution from Dr. Akhil Reed Amar, a Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he teaches constitutional law. Dr. Amar presented at the UNM Law School on February 16th. We know you will enjoy this discussion entitled The Constitution at a Crossroads. Enjoy. It's um, uh, humbling to be here with all of you. I'm so grateful that you came. Let me be candid. I'm quite vain, but I'm not so vain to think that you came for me. Here's why you came, because you care about our country. You care about our Constitution. I was taught many things, and maybe, maybe some of them were things that you were taught. I was taught the Constitution really, at the time it was adopted, let's just look at the preamble, okay? It starts with one sentence, and it's so familiar that you don't even stop to think about what actually the preamble says and does. And here's what we were taught. Well, the Constitution wasn't so democratic. They didn't even use the word democracy. Democracy is a dirty word. It's a republic and not a democracy. The document was basically designed to protect property people from democratic excesses. The, the masses were getting a little out of control. They believed in redistribution and paper money and canceling of debt. And uh, Shays' Rebellion prompted a conservative counter-revolution in which the elites behind closed doors, led by a general, foist on America a document basically bringing law and order and stability, but really for the 1%, maybe at the expense of the democratic exuberances unleashed by the American Revolution. That was the dominant narrative in the 20th century. Whether you're aware of it or not, you are a student of the most important book written about the Constitution in the 20th century. It's a book written in 1913 by Charles Beard called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, popularized by people like Howard Zinn, and I think it's all bunk. Here's the history of the world, in fact. Let's look at the world in 1786, the year before the Constitution is ratified. Who governs themselves? Who's free? Well, the Brits to some extent, and the Swiss, and the Americans. That's it. And Switzerland is not particularly important in the world. It doesn't have banks. It doesn't have cities. Mitt Romney has not begun to focus on it as a place to park his money. They have more goats than persons. They're free largely because the people leave them alone because you have to charge up a hill, and then what do you get when you get to the top? And... And then there's Britain, and it is self-governing to some extent. Um, it has jury trial. It has a, a House of Commons, so-called. But it has a hereditary House of Lords that no one voted for. You don't get into the House of Lords those days by being like a great rock star, like Sir Mick or Sir, Sir Elton or Sir Paul. It's a different kind of House of Lords. You have to be born into it. A hereditary monarch that no one voted for, an established church that people may or may not have chosen. But there's some self-government. That's it for self-government in the planet. And it's not just that's the world of 1786, that's the world of 1686 and 1586. And all the 86s back to the dawn of time, there's almost no self-government on the planet. Democracy makes a brief go of it in some tiny Greek city-states, Athens. And for a little time and over a little space range, people who live in the same little hamlet, they speak the same language, they worship the same god or gods, they have a common climate and culture, not warm weather and cold weather people, not multiple time zones, 
They make democracy work in Athens for a bit, but it flickers out. They're not able to sustain the democratic project against internal dissension or external attack. And Rome makes a better go of it than most, but it fails. So democracy has existed almost nowhere in the planet. The history of the world is the history of kings, emperors, czars, sultans, Mughal lords, tribal chieftains, thugs, all. And then, and this is what Beard completely misses, and all those who studied from Beard, which is the textbooks that you read were written by Beardians. So whether you know it or not, this is a narrative that you were taught. This is the narrative that I was taught at a good school. The history of the world is a history of thugs and not democracy. Around the world, no democracy in 1786 to speak of, really, never before, really, of any significance. And then, we, the people of the United States, did, in actual fact, ordain and establish a constitution that we put to a vote up and down a freaking continent for a whole year. And more people were allowed to vote on whether the Constitution was going to be the rules for them and their posterity than had ever before been allowed to vote on anything in human history. And yeah, it's limited if you look at it from the point of view of 2017, but compare it to 1786, you see. And in eight of the 13 states, people were allowed to vote on the Constitution or be selected as delegates to these special conventions, even though they didn't meet the ordinary property qualifications for voting in ordinary elections. In New York, all adult, free, male citizens get to vote. No race tests, no literacy tests, no property tests, no religious tests. Those aren't the ordinary rules in New York, but in this jubilee year, we, the people of the United States, actually deciding how we and our posterity are to be governed, the old restrictions were tossed out the window, you see. And before this book came along, there was basically one person who knew that fact in the previous hundred years. His name was Charles Beard, and he didn't tell you those facts. So we, for an entire year, put the thing to a vote, and, and not just a vote, but freedom of speech. You could be for the document, you could be against it, and no one shuts you down. No one dies politically in that whole year. You compare that to the French Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Russian Revolution. You compare that to today. That's stunning. You see that basically almost no one dies in political violence in a whole year in which people intensely disagree with each other. Deep polarization. This will never again happen in American history that will be polarized. Never again. Yeah, thank you. Right, right. But the people who lost were not demonized. They accepted the results of these elections. They worked together with their opponents to generate a bill of rights. The first thing that ordinary people say when the document is put to them is, dude, you forgot the rights. The bill of rights emerges bottom up from the people. It's crowdsourcing. It's Wikipedia. Avant la lettre. Ordinary people, when you actually ask them what they think, they say, well, since you ask, yes or no, do we or don't we? We do. We'll do it, I guess, but it could be better. And that's what we call a Bill of Rights, in which the words the people appear multiple times, more than any other phrase you see in the Bill of Rights, the right of the people to petition under the First Amendment and to keep and bear arms under the Second. Yes, a Yelp law professor mentioned the Second Amendment and to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth and in the Ninth and the Tenth. The people, the people, the people, the people, the people, because it's coming organically bottom up from the people. 
That doesn't happen in the world. In 1776, actually, if you're opposed to the Declaration of Independence, you're never heard from again politically. You know, here are your choices if you oppose the thing. One, leave. Two, shut up. Because it's a war, and it's not a philosophy seminar. But that doesn't happen, you see. That doesn't happen in this year that changes everything in human history. The hinge of history, the big bang in world history is the year that the Constitution is put to a vote because you can oppose the thing and you can later become President of the United States, James Monroe. Vice President of the United States, Elbridge Gerry, George Clinton, Justice on the Supreme Court, um, Samuel Chase. So no democracy in the world to speak of in 1786 and all the 86s going back to the dawn of time and then we the people of the United States do, in actual fact, ordain and establish a constitution with epic political participation and free speech, judged by the standards of that day, and the world would never be the same, you see. You inherit a democratic world, a world in which more than half of the planet, by population and landmass, is, in actual fact, democratic. And that, I claim, is not just after, but because of the American Constitution because of its legal, military, political, economic, social, and cultural success. And yes, we have some problems, but you need to understand what the world was before we the people of the United States came along and did this thing and what it was afterwards. That is the hinge of human history. If you are a secular person, you do believe in BC and AD, that would be before the Constitution and after the document. <laughs> and there are a billion people in India today and they are governing themselves with a written constitution and free and fair elections and multiple political parties and a bill of rights and judicial review and free speech on the American model. And when my parents are born in undivided India, they're governed by a king, a crown that no one voted for, a parliament that no one voted for, just as the American revolutionaries were, you see. That's a billion with a B people. Multiple religions and getting along pretty much. 100 million Muslims. So. Western Europe. It's free today, in case you missed it. And it wasn't when the Constitution was adopted. France was an absolutist monarchy when the Constitution was adopted. And now it's a pretty impressive republic. Not quite as impressive as California, but not bad. <laughs> California, and you're laughing, but California has a way higher GDP per capita and more religious toleration. And we forget all of this, you see. And not just Western Europe, but Eastern Europe. That wall came down. And because of presidents of both parties, I will give Ronald Reagan credit, I will give Jack Kennedy credit. One who says, I'm a Berliner, and another who says, you know, tear down this wall, and we stayed the course, and, and we saved. We, the people of the United States, actually saved Europe from these horrible ideologies of oppression, from Nazism, from fascism, from Soviet-style communism. We did that. The American Constitutional Project did that. Eastern Europe, Western Europe, India, Japan, half the planet, South America. Mexico is a much better democracy today than it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, because of the American Constitutional Project, you see. So we've done some things together as a people. And I say we, it wasn't my ancestors, but I can claim it just as you can because it's a multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic project which even some of the world's great democracies aren't really. Germany isn't really that. Switzerland isn't really that. What do these words mean? We, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish constitution. I wouldn't want to lose 
a jot or a tittle from that written text. People died for it, and I want you to know what the words actually say. But we're entitled to everything those words say and more. Not less, but more. Because the words don't say federalism, but that's an important principle in our Constitution. Separation of powers. Doesn't say it in the document. Checks and balances. One person, one vote. Rule of law. Doesn't say no man can be a judge in his own case. There are deep, abiding principles in our system that aren't set out in so many words because it's a short document because otherwise farmers couldn't read it from start to finish 200 years ago and decide whether they were for it or against it, which is what they had to do. They had to actually read the thing and decide whether they're yes or no. We do, we don't. So this book takes you beyond the written constitution and talks about a thing called an unwritten constitution, but the challenge is, well, what do you mean unwritten? Um, once you go beyond the written text, what are the rules? Where do you start? How do you end? How do you know when you've gone too far? How do we have an unwritten constitution without losing all the benefits of a written constitution, which are very considerable? Um, I'll just tell you just a little bit about how this book starts. It starts with a joke. Not a lawyer joke, but a law joke. See, I don't tell lawyer jokes um, because lawyers don't think they're funny and non-lawyers don't think they're jokes. <laughs> so, so this is a law joke. And let's see who laughs first. If you read the text of the Constitution, strictly and literally, simple question, and we'll see who laughs first, because it actually is kind of funny when you think about it. If you took the words seriously and only the words, who would preside at the vice president's impeachment trial? If Mike Pence were to be impeached, who would preside at that trial? Someone laughing yet? Anyone who's laughing, explain. Which body tries impeachments? The Senate, according to this document. Who's the presiding officer of the Senate? The Vice President, Mike Pence. And you're laughing because that, that can't be right. Even though it seems to say so if you just used the ordinary rules of syntax and grammar in the English language. So... I'm going to try to prove to you in the first 10 pages of this book that it isn't right. The vice president doesn't preside at his own impeachment trial, that I'm not making that up, that liberals as well as conservatives, red as well as blue people, actually should agree with me about all of that. But why should they? And, and if I can prove that the vice president actually doesn't preside at his own impeachment trial, because the Constitution is law, and law presumes an idea of the rule of law, and a first principle of the rule of law is that no man can ever be a judge in his own case. And they didn't even need to say that there because it went without saying because there are premises of the whole system. I can show you that the first 10 pages. Well, then I've just sawn a lady in half before your eyes because I've shown you actually that in this one instance, the Constitution rightly understood, if we're faithful to its spirit, means the exact opposite of what the words at first seem to say in ordinary English. You're listening to Generation Justice. Tonight, we hear from Dr. Akhil Reed Amar, who is a Sterling professor, one of Yale University's highest academic ranks for its faculty. He teaches constitutional law at the Yale College and Yale Law School. Here he is during his lecture titled, The Constitution at a Crossroads. He presented this here at the University of New Mexico. Why would the first Congress pass a set of amendments whose first words are Congress shall make no law. Why of a certain sort? You know, the Republicans say, yeah, Congress shall make no law, period. Congress shall make no law, exclamation point. But no, it doesn't quite say that. It says Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. 
abridging free speech, free press. Um, but why would Congress ever pass an amendment saying Congress is limited in a certain way? Why would senators of the United States at a certain point ever vote to have an amendment to change the rules by which senators are elected? Because of course senators think the rules that got them elected have to be the good rules. But why would they ever do that? How do women get the vote given none of the women have the vote at a certain point, so they can't vote themselves the vote, so how does that ever happen? How do we go from almost no blacks voting in America in 1860 to almost all blacks voting in America equally in 1870? How do you get two-thirds, two-thirds, three-quarters for initially prohibition, two-thirds the House, two-thirds the Senate, three-quarters the states, and then shortly thereafter, two-thirds, two-thirds, three-quarters for the exact opposite, repeal of prohibition? Those are interesting constitutional questions, but they're not the questions of your era, you know, the questions of today. Now, I'm going to sort of make a transition, and we're just going to have a conversation together. You will ask me questions about anything in our constitutional experience, any of the branches of government, any century, anything today or going back. I'll try to answer them. Here we go. One of the issues that matters in New Mexico is the role of Indian tribes in the constitutional system, and particularly given that you talk about um, the rule of law and the role of consent, what do you make of the fact in the system that tribes never consented to the Constitution? It's a great question, and one of the biggest flaws of my scholarship thus far is I haven't talked about it in sufficient detail. I go around the country, people ask me questions, and then I go back and research, because you're entitled to answers, and you have a day job, and but my job is to actually try to answer the serious questions about the Constitution, and that's one of the biggest serious questions of the Constitution that I haven't actually answered in any satisfactory way. The next book, which won't be out for several years, is called 12 Score, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1761 to 2000, and it's gonna be a chronological telling of the story. See, in a textual telling, Indian tribes don't really feature very prominently in the text. The words, Indians not taxed, appears in the 14th Amendment, Section 2, and there's a little discussion of Indians in rules about the Indian tribes and interstate commerce and international commerce and commerce with Indian tribes, but they don't appear very much in the Constitution. And if you are telling a textual story, not so big. If you're telling a story about America's unwritten Constitution, I perhaps could have had a chapter there, but... That was, a, that was an omission on my part. But in the chronological story, I'm going to have to tell you about how big an issue Indian removal, for example, is for the entire period between 1787 and 1870 or something like that. Now, what is the story of the Constitution? Why would people ever agree to a continental constitution. You see, because democracy has never before in human history extended over a wide geographic area. Why would people ever vote for that? Because they did, ordinary farmers did. And Athens wasn't like that, and Rome, pre-imperial Rome was like, and when Rome extends, taking in all sorts of different lands and peoples, it becomes an empire with an emperor. You see, democracy was not seen as congenial to that. The great political theorists of the time, like Montesquieu, said it can't be done. The Constitution is nothing less than world government for a new world set apart by vast oceanic moats from the rest of the planet. It would be as if today 
someone actually said, let's have a real-world government because we have real-world problems. Climate change, international terrorism, nuclear proliferation, population, free and fair trade, pandemic viruses. We have global issues and we need global solutions. So here's what we need. We need a government of the world, and they'll be directly elected, people from the United States and others, and there's going to be a president of the world and an army of the world with real force and, and courts that are going to operate, world courts, directly on and coercively on individuals. And you're never going to vote for that. And I'm not going to vote for that. And there's only one thing imaginable that could get me to vote for that or you. Martians. Aliens. And then you'd say, well, we don't really love the Chinese, and we have some issues with the Russians, but what the hell, they're homo sapiens, we're in, let's roll. <laughs> the American Constitutional Project exists for geostrategic reasons. Here's the basic point. They look around the world. Who's free in all the world? Well, the Swiss and the Brits. Well, why are they free? because they have defensible borders. Because it's hard to charge up a hill, and the Great Wall of the Alps is a natural fort. And once Britain unites, when England and Scotland create a perfect union with Queen Anne, well, now it's defensible. See, why, why are thugs reigning over the rest of the world? Because regimes have land borders, and their neighbors build up an army, and so they need to build up an army, and their neighbors build up a bigger army, and they need to build up a bigger counter-army, and thugs emerge to control these armies, and they use them to suppress the population domestically. That's the world. And when Britain is England versus Scotland, you see Hadrian's Wall is no Great Wall of China. It's no Alps. It's not a defensible border, and they're always fighting each other, and Mel Gibson's coming down and, um, and whomping on the English, and, and Mary, Queen of Scots, is intervening uh, from France, and Kate uh, Blanchett, I guess, or other. So, and, and no one's free in an armed fortress state, but if you unify that island, now all you need is a navy. It has to be able to beat the Spanish Armada. You don't need an army. Uh, navies don't threaten domestic liberty. And that's why England is free, you see. And the Athenians are free because they're a great naval power and Sparta isn't. It's a land power. And late in the 20th century, Britain is a great naval power against the great land power, more totalitarian of Germany or later Russia, which doesn't have warm water ports and other things. So America wants to emulate Britain. We're going to create an island nation with these vast oceanic moats be just like England, a perfect union. And, and here's the point. It's going to be very hard to invade us because 3,000 mile wide ocean is going to be English Channel times 50. And here's the plan. And I do say this in chapter one. This is the plan. Because America's constitution originally is not designed for the benefit of non-Americans, including the Native Americans. It's designed for us, the Americans. The plan is we unite. We get rid of land borders with each other because otherwise we're going to start fighting with each other. The great powers of Europe are going to intervene, play divide and conquer, and we'll just look like the continent of Europe, killing each other. Okay. But if we unite, form a perfect union on the model of Scotland and England, we're going to kick the Brits out. They have a bunch of forts, we'll kick them out. We're going to kick the Spanish out. We're going to kick the French out. We're going to kill the Indians. We're going to control the continent, manifest destiny, the Monroe Doctrine, from sea to shining sea, baby, and no one will mess with us because we're the U.S. of A. That's actually why people voted for it. Who is the dominant political figure in antebellum America? It's Andrew Jackson. 
and he's not what you were taught. You taught the Constitution is aristocratic, he's lowborn. The Constitution you were taught isn't democratic, he proudly claims he's democratic, capital D. He doesn't like foreigners, he's very hawkish, he doesn't like Native Americans, he bears a certain resemblance to the person who's now president of the United States. Andrew Jackson is the closest we've ever had to Donald Trump, and it's part of the American DNA, you see. And the Indians are the big losers in this project. It's not designed for the benefit of the British, or the Spanish, or the French, or the Mohawk, or the Iroquois, or the Navajo, or the Ute, you know. And I'd say that in chapter one, but I don't elaborate the whole thing. And, and, and is this right and fair? Well, maybe not. And does this make any sense? Because when the Constitution is adopted, the rest of the world are basically thugs. So screw them in a fortress America. But today, the rest of the world are democracies, or half of them, and we need to engage them. And we have one world problems, and our moats no longer protect us because we got submarines and ships right off our shore. And we can't do Star Wars. It's not going to protect us from intercontinental missiles, even though we want it to. We want to crawl back into the womb because that's where we came from. And there are pandemic viruses and climate change, and our problems are global in a way that they weren't before. And our opportunities are global because now they're democracies. And this isn't fair to the Native Americans, maybe. So this is an opportunity to re think some of the deep premises of the original Constitution, but our Constitution originally was about defensible borders. It was. And Trump actually gets that in some very deep and important way. And Andrew Jackson got that in some deep and important way. And the Indians, the Native Americans, were the big losers in that project. And I say that, but I haven't elaborated that. I don't want to defend I just want to describe it so that we can decide whether that's what we want to be or not. Why is America free? Here's what Mrs. McGillicuddy taught you. Well, we're free because of the Bill of Rights and courts. Well, if we're free because of the Bill of Rights, the framers were stupid because they didn't even propose a Bill of Rights. And they weren't stupid. And after the Bill of Rights is ratified, it's not enforced in court. Name any important antebellum Supreme Court case that actually enforces the Bill of Rights against Congress. There's only one. It's called Dred Scott, and it's a travesty. It actually says the Bill of Rights are violated when the Republican Party says, read our lips, no new slavery. You, know, you can't prohibit slavery from the territories. That's what Dred Scott said. They're making it all up. Okay? When's the first time the United States Supreme Court strikes down an act of Congress as a violation of the First Amendment? The answer is 1965. And Congress is passing all sorts of unconstitutional laws, the Sedition Act, all the rest. You are not free because Courts heroically vindicated the Bill of Rights. Here's why you're free. And I tell this story. This is all chapter one of America's Constitution and Biography. You are free because for the first 150 years in America, there is no standing army in peacetime of any real significance. Because we didn't need one, because we could hide behind the Atlantic Ocean. All we needed was 5,000 people to basically kill the Indians and control the continent. And that 5,000 wasn't enough to threaten domestic liberty, especially in a population that actually had guns in their hands, militias and the like. And why are we freaking out so much about 9-11? Because we're not used to being attacked on our home soil in the heartland. Around the world, they're used to that. That's their world, okay? 30 million Soviets die in, the, in World War II. And here it's only Pearl Harbor. It's not Los Angeles or Chicago or Detroit or, or New York. The last time before 9-11, foreigners draw blood in the heartland is the War of 1812, which is the Revolutionary War sort of revisited. 
So America is a geostrategic project about defensible borders, and this helps explain why we've over-arguably reacted to 9-11, because that's such a, a trauma to our national psyche. And you live today in a military-industrial surveillance complex that only exists after World War II, which is what Ike understood in that famous speech when he's warning people about that. For the first 150 years, Americans are free because there's no standing army of any significance in peacetime, which is why the United States always loses the first year of every war until we finally sort of mobilize, you know, in World War I, the Union and the Civil War, and the like. Are you assuming by that statement that if the United States had a standing army of 100,000 people, that a president or some politician would then become a demagogue? Well, America today is a lot scarier because the commander-in-chief has a massive military-industrial surveillance complex at his beck and call. And that wasn't true of George Washington. And that wasn't true of Andrew Jackson. And that wasn't true of Warren Harding or Franklin Roosevelt until World War II. And you live in a different world today. Yes, you live in a world of a massive military-industrial surveillance state that only emerges after World War II. And if you're telling yourself a story, ah, America has always worked because of the Bill of Rights and courts, you're actually missing some of the unique issues of the current era. Yes, you've misunderstood the basic constitutional story. Many people have said that the Trump presidency is a test of the checks and balances of, of the nation. From your perspective, how do you see the Trump presidency playing out in terms of these checks and balances? I have some anxieties. I voted, <laughs> I voted for Hillary Clinton. I was with her, cards on the table. When Kissinger met Ju and Lai, um, as part of a secret negotiation to see whether we were going to recognize the Chinese government, he was just trying to get a sense of the fellow, and he asked Ju and Lai, so what do you think of the French Revolution? You know, just how radical a person is Ju and Lai. And Jun Lai said, too soon to tell, um, which is very Chinese. You can't actually tell the story of a man until you know how his grandchildren die, not just how he dies. So it is too soon to tell. I will say that one thing is when you study history, we've never had a president before who had no history of public service. That's a new thing in the world. And whether he's temperamentally suited for this is a question I will say that the executive order that was issued might have some problems, but I think the courts have perhaps exaggerated some of them, and a new order may issue that might affect almost as many people, but will be a little bit more careful in some of its provisions. So the really big constitutional decision that he's made is basically the decision to nominate Judge Gorsuch, and I think it's an admirable decision. And I'm a Democrat. And there are essays in this book that I've been flacking, the Constitution today, two essays about what a great man Merrick Garland is. And he was and is. And I supported his nomination. Why do I say what I say about Judge Gorsuch? I may have met him once. Well, first, see how it's a reflection of, because he's a very polarizing figure, but we live in a polarized world, polarized America. But from certain perspectives, this is a unifying decision. He went to these East Coast elite academies, as did all the other justices. Every one of them went to Harvard or Yale. Every single current justice went to Harvard or Yale Law School, and so did Justice Scalia. And not just the justices, 
went to these fancy East Coast places. Of the last five presidents, you see four of them, all except Trump, went to Harvard or Yale. And Trump went to Penn. And of the last eight runners up, six went to Harvard or Yale. Hillary and John Kerry and uh, Al Gore and H.W., okay. And if you count running mates, the last time America faced an election where none of the top four people, the two Democrats and two Republicans, president, vice president, nominees, last time America faced an election where none of them went to one of these two schools, Harvard and Yale, 1968, which was a long time ago. And that year, Bobby Kennedy was blown away before my very eyes. I think he's a Harvard person. I think he probably might have won the Democratic nomination, even won the whole thing. Since Teddy Roosevelt, 10 of the last 20 presidents have gone to one of four schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia. And that's not counting the person who became president of Columbia, Ike, you know, or went to other fancy places like Stanford, Herbert Hoover, or Amherst, Calvin Coolidge, or the Naval Academy, President Carter. So, world of increasing education elites, and this is in the heartland. People are nervous about that. Now, what's impressive about Gorsuch in this world? Yeah, he went to those same places. He's a smart guy, very well-trained, but he's actually from the heartland. He's not a coastal person. He'd be the first current justice. In that way, he harkens back to Byron White, from, um, for whom he clerked, you know, um, from your next-door state of, of Colorado. So maybe a unifying decision. The coast and the heartland are finding someone they can agree on. He's not a crony at all. You know, he doesn't come from sort of the Trump world. Any other Republican president, including the ones that some of you might prefer to Trump, Gorsuch would have been a very distinguished pick for a President Jeb Bush or a President Paul Ryan or a President Mike Pence or a President Marco Rubio or John Kasich. He seems to me a principled person. And I know of no one who's clearly better that a Republican would pick. And I know of a lot of people who are clearly worse. We could have done a lot worse. This was good. And that was his biggest constitutional decision thus far. So, you know, I voted against him. I went around the country for months warning my fellow citizens that I thought that he was a distinctive threat. But he was elected by the people, and I believe in our system, and I have to give him a chance. And so, too soon to tell. And this executive order issued before he even had a, an attorney general in place and a full legal team. So, Mike Pence seems to be a sobering force, you know, a horse whisperer. Um, uh, and, um, and that's good. Mike Pence is law trained. This is good. Of the 44 people elected president of the United States, because remember, they say 45, but they're double counting Grover Cleveland. 26 of them are law trained, red law or practice law. Of the remainder, almost all of them had law trained vice presidents. Only seven, and he does, Pence is law trained, and this is good and important. Only seven presidents have neither been law trained themselves nor have a law trained running mate. And those seven include James Madison, who wrote a lot of the Constitution and knew a thing or two about law. And one of his two vice presidents was a law trained person, George Clinton. Andrew Johnson, but he never even had a vice president, and that was a disaster. So you see what happens when you don't have law-trained people. Ulysses S. Grant, scandal-ridden, but at least he had two prominent secretaries of state who were law-trained. Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, but they had a law-trained secretary of state, Dean Rusk. 
Ronald Reagan, but he had law-trained Cap Weinberger and Jim Baker, high cabinet officials, even though he wasn't law-trained, neither was his vice president, H.W., and W., who uniquely was not law-trained, didn't have a vice president was law-trained, neither a secretary of state was not law-trained, secretary of defense was not law-trained. So, you know, I, I actually believe that law-training is good. That, you know, you're supposed to, supposed to take an oath to the Constitution. It's the supreme law. That's no guarantee. Bill Clinton did all sorts of things that no one should have done, and he's law-trained. And so did Richard Nixon. I just don't want to be partisan about the thing. I hope, I hope I've been straight with you about what I believe, but I hope I've also not been uber-partisan in my comments, because the Constitution is the inheritance of both parties. So Pence is supremely important in the administration because the Secretary of State is not law-trained, and that's unusual. Most of them have been. The Secretary of Defense is not law-trained, and we've had Casper Weinberg, for example. We've had law So we don't have a Secretary of State who's law-trained or Secretary of Defense, and the President isn't. So Pence is actually a very important figure in the system going forward, and keep your eye on him. And does Trump know Gorsuch from anyone? No. He basically asked the Federal Society who's a good list, and, and Gorsuch rose to the top, and this is good. Again, he's not a crony. And this was his one important constitutional decision, and so far, you know, I would say he aced it. You're listening to Generation Justice. Tonight we hear from Dr. Akhil Reed Amar, who is a Sterling professor at Yale University. Dr. Amar teaches constitutional law. He recently came to UNM to give a presentation titled The Constitution at a Crossroads. I just want to ask a it might not be a quick question, but the question will be quick. The answer might be long. About the historical and theoretical and practical aspects of Article 5 convention. Yes. Because some people argue that we have a constitution that was a great model for the 18th century, but um, a lot of people have come up with other uh, examples and ways to run a country. And you mentioned the French, and the French every couple decades rip up their system of governance and start right. a new one. And that idea is bubbling around in state legislatures. Some people think the Constitution is too hard to amend. Compared to state constitutions, which are much easier to amend, compared to the great democracies of the world, none of which has a Constitution as hard to amend. I used to be one of those people. I've changed my mind. Maybe I'm wrong now. But here's when I studied the document what I found. And this is summarized in the last chapter of America's unwritten Constitution. State constitutions look a lot like the federal Constitution. Written constitutions, bills of rights, bicameral legislatures, governors who look like presidents elected independently. You see single-member districts, two parties, judicial review, jury trial. 51 American constitutions that all look pretty similar. But state constitutions are a lot easier to amend, like California. Do people love their state constitutions more? Oh, I don't know, you know, in California, whether we love our state constitution more than the federal. One data point. Second data point. State constitutions, some of the amendments I think have been bad ones. I don't think the one man, one woman amendments were actually good ones in a whole bunch of state constitutions. State constitutions have had good amendments and bad ones. Federal constitution has had almost all good amendments, except for prohibition, which got repealed. This is impressive. Not that many amendments, but they've all been in the right direction. I'm a young person. I said, oh, it could be so much better. And I'm an old guy now. I said, yeah, it could be a lot worse. And in my lifetime, all sorts of bad constitutional ideas, like 
constitutionalizing marriage as one man, one woman, have been defeated because it's actually hard to amend the Constitution. Let's make flag burning a crime. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's, let's cut a big hole in the First Amendment. A majority's voted for that in Congress, but not super majorities. So I actually now think, well, Article 5 isn't so stupid after all. It set a bar pretty high, but we've had only good amendments and not bad, and the federal Constitution is arguably more beloved than states. And yeah, France, but I'd rather be here than France. So um, for all our problems, I'd still you know, pick us over, over them. And counterpart of France is not the United States of America. It's California, and California's better. And maybe it's good, given that we're so deeply divided, that the narrowest of majority can't jam its ideas on the minority, that we need a broader consensus. So I've changed my mind on that, and maybe I'm wrong for changing my mind, but that encapsulates some of the reasons. Having studied history, why I now think differently about the high bar set by the amendment process. I'm not well versed in the Constitution, but I'd like to talk to the Article 2, I believe it is, with the, uh, it, although it doesn't state separation of church and state, I was wondering if you could speak to it and what your feelings were about it. So the First Amendment says that there's no establishment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And the words separation of church and states don't quite appear in the Constitution. They appear in many judicial cases. This concept of the Establishment Clause has now been applied against state and local governments, so now state and local governments can't actually have an established church. At the founding, half the states had established churches. Massachusetts did, Connecticut did, New Hampshire did, and some of the southern states had established Anglicanism. Original First Amendment was actually a states' rights provision of a certain sort. Remember, it begins, Congress shall make no law. It actually says, Congress, butt the heck out. You may make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's no law on the topic of it. On either way, you can't have a national church, but you also can't disestablish the state churches. But the heck out, Congress. Leave it to local option. The original First Amendment was an American version of the Peace of Augsburg of 1555 and the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648. There won't be an empire-wide policy on religion. We're going to leave it up to each little um, individual duchy. Cuius regio, eis religio, is the, you may remember from AP um, history classes or something. Local option, no imperial policy, because we're just too diverse a society. And in that model, if you don't like your local church-state policy, you move. Now, is that a model today? No, we all have to live together. So after the Civil War, by the time of the Civil War, all the states have gotten rid of their established churches. And now there's a new vision that basically is not agnostic. It basically is an anti-establishment vision. And the best way of thinking about it is, in effect, not so much separation, but religious equality. People of all faiths should be treated the same and, and even people who may not have a faith shouldn't be treated as inferior. So the big idea in the new era, I would say, is not so much separation of church and state as religious equality. Why is religious equality or neutrality a better model? 
because if you think about separation, I think, well, it's a problem when if the church is burning down, um, the fire department shows up and puts out the fire because that's not a separation of church and state. It's a problem if someone who happens to be a preacher gets elected to Congress because, you know, that's not a separation of church and state. If Jesse Jackson Jr. or something else wants to run for office. So if you think separation... You, we may end up discriminating against religion, I think, in some unfortunate ways. We may end up saying, for example, I had a conversation, you can see it on C-SPAN, with um, a very great constitutional scholar who believes in separation. His name is Erwin Chemerinsky, and I respectfully disagree with him. Here was the case, and I asked him the following question. And all of America, in effect, was watching through C-SPAN. That means 1,000 people. But, you know, I'm, you know, imagining, you know, that I'm scoring some big, you know, uh, rhetorical point for the, for the mass. I said, now, Professor, is it your view that the Constitution not only permits but requires the following, that if government wants to leave no child behind and it gives a computer to every kid in the public school so that they can do their homework, and it gives a computer to every kid in every private non-religious school, that in the name of separation, what the Constitution requires is if a private school adds a prayer to the end of the day to its curriculum, it's now become a religious school, and we have to take the computer away from all those kids. Is that your position? You know, they teach reading, writing, arithmetic, they meet all the accreditation standards, they were, they were perfectly eligible before, but they've added a prayer to the end of the day, and now be, in the name of separation, we've got to yank those computers from people. Is that your view? That's what the Constitution actually requires. And he said, yes. And I said, thank you, counselor, because I thought that was absurd that we shouldn't be discriminating in favor of religion, but we shouldn't be discriminating against it either. If you get a computer because the school teaches reading, writing, arithmetic, you shouldn't get the computer or not get the computer because there's a prayer or not. You know, don't ask, don't tell. Religion should not be discrimination against religion or in its favor. So I think actually the better watchword, and this is where the Supreme Court is moving, is not separate as in separation of church and state, not separate, but equal. Religion should be treated neutrally and equally. No religion should be preferred to any other, and people of faith should be neither preferred nor dispreferred over others. And in this, and let me just give you a little, and here we end, a little foretaste of that, even before the First Amendment comes along, actually, and this is why you have to pay attention to what the Constitution says and doesn't say. Here's what it doesn't say. So this is George Washington taking his oath of office. And he's swearing on a Bible. And he's allowed to do that, but he's not required to do that. And other presidents have actually wanted to swear on that very same Bible. But here's what the Constitution says. No religious test can be imposed for any federal officer. No state constitution has that at the time. Ten of the states have religious tests in their state constitutions. Only one state has no religious qualifications. That's Virginia, the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom, and that statute could be changed tomorrow. The federal constitution says we're going to be open, the federal government, to people of all faiths and no faith. Amazing. The oath of office. Here it is in its entirety. Because they spell it out word for word because presidents are dangerous and powerful, and we want to get clear exactly what the job description is. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Period. It doesn't say so, help me, God. You're allowed to say it if you want, 
but you don't have to say it, and I like that, okay? It treats everyone equally and openly. Let me contrast that, because, see, the absence of these words, you won't see that the big news is it doesn't say, so help me God. All the state constitutions had, so help me God, or an analogs in their state oaths. Here's the English coronation oath. You have to swear, you have to say, so help me God. You have to kiss the Bible. The ceremony must be presided over by an Anglican bishop or archbishop. And not just any Bible, you know, this Douay Catholic Bible stuff, you know, with the Apocrypha. That doesn't count. It has to be a good, old-fashioned, Protestant, King James Bible. And you have to pledge to be defender of the faith. And there's an established church in Britain, and we don't have any of that. And you can call it separation if you like, but I wish you wouldn't, in fact, because separation can sometimes end up discriminating against religion, and I wouldn't want us to do that. So to repeat, I think our watchword when it comes to religion should be not separate, but equal. Thank you very much. We've come to the end of another great show. We would like to thank Dr. Akhil Ridamar for sharing with us the history of constitutional law and why it's so important to understand. Production assistance came from Christina Rodriguez, Kateri Zuni, and Roberta Rael. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and please rate us. We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konama Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Polly Dineklo. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Have a blessed week.